Hello, and welcome to the third annual Movie Ghoul Round, where each Movie Go Round episode leading up to Halloween 2020 is spookier than the last. This week's theme for Movie Ghoul Round is Future Classics. Hello, everybody. Joining me for the next movie, Ghoul Round. We're almost done with the cycle. Well, we got... No, we got this one and two more, so we're halfway through the cycle about. Nicole Davis, how are you? I'm pretty well. I'm very excited. I could talk about this movie for hours at a stretch, so I'm psyched to to get going. At which point the listener looks down at their phone and sees like a two and a half hour runtime on this episode and just decides <laughs> to skip some way to the halfway no, point. No, no, no. Try. We keep it tight. We run a tight ship here. Uh, David yeah. Luzader, how are you? Oh, Mandy, Nick Cage made an accent. He killed people because this yeah. movie is called Mandy. So I did the song. Hello. Should I put in some music right underneath that when it uh like nah. just a nice bed of the of the backtrack? Nah, because I'm I'm probably way off like tempo. <laughs> well, uh, we did indeed. We watched Mandy. I, I suppose we've already uh, broken that eggshell open. Is that a phrase? That's a phrase now. But for movie ghoul around, everything is spooky. This whole cycle leading up to Halloween. Now, that means tomorrow, which is around the world, is going to be spooky as well. Uh, around the world is when one of us gets to pick a film that uh, has come out internationally. It's not a U.S. film. Uh, so I had a lot of trouble with this one because, weirdly enough, when it comes to horror in international, I'm a little bit more versed than in other uh, genres of film, largely in part, shameless plug here that we're not getting paid for, because of Shudder.com. Uh <sighs> Shudder's great. Like, I, so this film that I'm going to have us watch, because it's my pick, uh, is a Shudder exclusive. It was shot a couple years ago, and then Shudder bought the rights to it. It's on their site. Uh, if you're not familiar with Shudder, it's like five bucks a month, but I would highly recommend just getting the trial to watch it, because uh, while I did not pick some of the other films that I could have, um, they have a phenomenal 2020 version of uh, La Llorona, which is a Guatemalan version which I'll bring to the show at some point. Um, they have Mandy and Color Out of Space, both as exclusives. So if you want to see this film that we're talking about right now, it's on there. Uh, it just got some really good stuff if you're in the spooky mood this month. So shameless plug there. Um, we're going to be watching a Mexican film uh, called Tigers Are Not Afraid. So that is the <gasps> film for next week. Nicole, are you familiar? I've seen it. Really? <laughs> I have. Yeah, I like it when I, I get a good I reaction. Was very lucky. It, came, it came to the Brattle Cinema uh, last year, and we went to see it. And I'm I'm very happy with this choice. Glad to hear it. Yeah, I I would say leading up to it, it's not a, it's not necessarily very scary as much as it is just spooky and eerie and atmospheric. It's it's got the right elements for this kind yeah. of season, but it's not going to jump scare you necessarily. So be sure to check that out. Tigers are not afraid. Uh, but now it's time for Mandy, future classics. Nicole, you are saying Mandy came out in 2018, is in some capacity going to be a future classic. Again, a reminder for the listeners, this is a category that the film has to have come out in the last decade. This checks that box. It's fairly recent. And 
that, that's about it, actually. So let me read the synopsis here, and then you can explain to us why you think, in some capacity, Mandy will be looked at as a classic of cinema. Uh, Red and Mandy live in a quiet, sorry, live a quiet, peaceful life in a rural cabin. When members of a cult arrive in town, they bring down horror and tragedy on the couple, and Red sets out on a quest for revenge. Nicole, uh, some of our yeah. worst movies on this podcast have been horror movies with Nick Cage in the driver's seat. <laughs> how, how is this one different? <laughs> what is future classic-y about it? Oh, guys, guys, guys. I love this movie, you guys. <laughs> That's not what makes it a classic, but I love this movie, you guys. Um, <laughs> this is the second film by Panos Cosmatos. Um, his father was uh, filmmaker George P. Cosmatos, uh, probably best known for Rambo First Blood Part Two and Tombstone. Um so he grew up around movie making. His first movie was Beyond the Black Rainbow, which he sees more as an art film uh, than a horror film. A lot of people went into it thinking it was going to be a, a horror genre film. And it's it's not quite, but it's super atmospheric. It's all about the atmosphere. Um, very little story to it. It's very much like David Cronenberg on a Moog synthesizer for an hour and a half and then like altered states thrown in as well. Um, but this movie, this movie, he built on that aesthetic and he keeps the same aesthetic, but he also brought in a co-writer and added uh, more story to it. And this film spends the first half building this relation, well, not building the relationship, but showing you the relationship between Red and Mandy and what their lives are like and this sort of um, fantastical um, aesthetic that Mandy loves. You know, she's very into fantasy novels. She's like a fantasy illustrator. Um, and Red is just, seems constantly to be you know, sort of how did I get so lucky uh, about it all? And they live this lovely, quiet life. And then something happens in the middle of the movie and the second half gets wild and goes over the top. And then when you think it's done going over the top, it finds a new hill to go up and it goes over the top again. And then when you think it's done, uh, the animation starts and uh, then it goes over the top again. And it, it ends in this just sort of maniacal oh, just apex of flames and rage and just oh I just love it so much <laughs> <laughs> all right it's a beautiful it's a it's a visually beautiful moody lovely it's an it's an experience it is not just a film it's an experience so i first saw this under i would i may well be biased because i saw this for the first time under absolutely ideal conditions i saw it in an, a big art theater with like a proscenium arch and a stage and it was packed 
to the gills with an audience that was absolutely primed for it. And it was a midnight screening and everybody just rode the wave of this film. And at the end, we all went bananas. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, so that kind of, that, that sort of sticks with me as part of my experience sure. of this movie. But That's, I'll I'll be quiet now, so we can actually you know, discuss things. <laughs> it's very similar to my experience when I first saw the film because I saw it at the Music Box here in Chicago, which is one of those ornate, you know, ninety year old cinemas with with the stage and everything, and it was packed. And um, I actually went to it on your recommendation, if I'm not mistaken, in 2018. I, because I tr- begged both of you to go see yeah. this in a movie theater. Yeah, and 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 you, and you were right. It was. You're right. It is an experience. I think that's such a good way to describe it because it is such a sensory overload of particularly, I was about to say audio and visual and I realized that's just describing a movie, but, <laughs> but in a, in a particularly unique way, because it is eye candy, albeit grotesque eye candy. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll just kind of go, well, first of all, David, what did you end up seeing in theater or did you end up catching it later? No, no. I was not. <laughs> I was not able to, to see it in theaters. Uh, I mean, I lived in a small town. We did have an Alamo draft house and it did come there briefly, but I came there for like a week and I completely like missed it. I thought that it was going to be around a little bit longer, but I did end up watching it one night um, when I was supposed to fly back to, to Phoenix uh, for Christmas and my flight got delayed, 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 canceled. So I had to take a very expensive Uber back home. And then uh, to console myself for the rest of the night, I watched Mandy. Huh. Okay. Right on. So we've all, we had all seen it prior. Uh, we knew Nicole was going to bring this to the to the table at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Let's dive into our discussion topics because we have a bevy of them and we have an hour. So I want to try to crank through as many of them as possible. And I think Nicole is one here at the very top that is very indicative of the tone of this movie in a lot of ways. Um, first of all, I'm sorry. What's how do you pronounce the director's name again? Is it Cosmatos? Cosmatos. Cosmatos. Uh, I wonder if Cosmatos ever considered calling this the nightmare of male entitlement, the movie, but it just wouldn't fit on the poster. Yeah, I felt I felt like I was more in tune to that this time around when I just sat there and realized like, oh, yeah, the entire catalyst for all this horrific violence is a dude saw a lady and that and that's it. And he was immediately entitled to to do what he did <laughs> um, yeah. because that that's the catalyst is this cult comes in the town and they're literally driving by and the guy sees Mandy on the side of the road. And then, and then hires a uh, gang of d- druggies. I guess, I really don't know how to describe this demons weird question demon mark? Biker gang. Biker Cenobites by way of guar. Maybe sure. Um, yeah, no, wow. sure. That's, as <laughs> oh, that's as such a good enough. That's such and, a good description. Yeah, yeah, and they they kidnap not just her but also Nicolas Cage. Yeah. So so before we dive into like one of the four rabbit holes, we can go there. The Guar, the Guar members on their bikes, which that's all I can think of now. Uh, and Nick Cage. <laughs> but let, let's talk a little bit about that. Like this whole movie. Like you have this cult leader. Who, whose name in the movie is Jeremiah Sand. And when he kidnaps Mandy from her home, 
he proceeds to like sit her down and give her this model, this naked monologue. He's just whipping his weenie around, talking all about how he was just this misunderstood Charles Manson esque art musical artist that put out a bad album that no one liked, um, but it was a great misunderstood album, and he is a genius. And uh, well, yeah, the Carpenters are sensational, but this is even better. Oh. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So yeah, uh, I have feelings about the carpenters. In any case, it's <laughs> it's she laughs at she laughs right in his face. I mean, she Mandy's all drugged up and they've put her on LSD and injected a, a bug into her. But wasp venom. Yeah. She just completely demasculates him in this instance, and he can't take it. When I was at the bottom of the pit. Screaming in the darkness, racked with unspeakable pain for having been denied all that was rightfully mine. Yep. Yeah, and his response uh, to, to do so then is go out there and taunt her husband and then ritualistically murder her with fire. Uh, yeah. Which is, which is horrible and horrifying, and that scene lasts so long, and having us watch Nick Cage watch it is, is intense and dark. But I do got to say, that was an impressively hot fire, because... Yeah. <laughs> I'm aware that the temperature of, of actually, you know, burning a sleeping bag is not sufficient to... Yeah, because when, when it's... the human body to ash. Yeah, when it's done, she's not just burned, she is, she is ashed. Well, she's ashed, but also like her her head is like perfectly intact as a giant ball of ash shaped as a head before it breaks apart. Yeah. Yeah. And we're talking about it in this way of like, oh, we're kind of ragging on the movie for it. This is one of those things where like when you can step back and be like, okay, this part. Right. But like when you're actually watching it, it it works in the universe of the movie. Like absolutely the the intense ramped up. Uh, I already said intense, but intensity of everything. Like it makes sense that this fire would burn her down to nothing. And there, yeah, I'm I mean, have, that's, oh, go ahead, that's the key word when it comes to this movie. I mean, it's intense color, intense soundscape, intense mm-hmm. uh, lighting effects, you know, when they're, when they're taken and they're actually not kidnapped out of their home. It's just the, children of the new dawn is the name of the cult is the children just treat the house like it's their own um so it's actually red and mandy's house that they're having this uh you know they've got red tied up in his own backyard with barbed wire that's the first time i've ever seen barbed wire used as a gag and wow was that painful to even think about for a second um but when they're taken from their bed, it, there's this intense, bright blue light as the the bikers, they're called the Black Skulls, as the Black Skulls arrive and then the Children of the New Dawn in behind them. And, uh, you know, it's just, oh my goodness. It's, and this strobing effect and it's, everything about this movie is intense and the violence in the second half gets really intense and it's, just kind of you just kind of got to go with it or you're not going to enjoy it 
And, that, and that's the <laughs> yeah. thing is there's certain elements of this movie that when we talk about them later, i.e. Chainsaw Fight, it's going to sound like I'm oh, ragging on it and talking about a crazy no, B-horror no, no, no. movie. But Wait, the, how, how in any way could Chainsaw Fight be a bad thing? Well, no, but no, what I'm saying <laughs> is that it's the best thing. But when you describe it, it sounds like something that would happen in a bad B-horror movie. It's so outlandish and so absurd. <laughs> and, you, and you have Nick Cage. It sounds yep. like it's going to be awful. But it's so good and when you put yourself in this world which is a weird dichotomy between like ethereal and horrific because as nicole says like you have all these colors just exploding on the screen and you have that scene where the the children of the new dawn are coming into the home to abduct mandy and uh there's these strobes going on and off and these bright blue lights just moments before they're going to bed in their their bedroom of glass walls in the middle of the forest and looking up at <laughs> at this ethereal sky of just outstanding colors of the universe and talking about planets and you have like that really beautiful side of this movie that shows you all of that all that really planetary magnificent stuff and then particularly in the second half it's just doused in dark red <laughs> and is yes. foreboding and scary and still kind of beautiful in a weird way it's it's an amazing it's an amazing color scape yeah no for sure and you you mentioned the house and i just want to say i want to get on airbnb and rent that thing out for a week that is a <laughs> right beautiful oh, property that out in the forest of belgium they built that that house and the uh as soon as the director of photography arrived, he was like, all right, just, you know, whatever you do, don't set up the bedroom in that glassy area over there. <laughs> and what do they do? And of course, that's where they put it because it looks amazing. It was probably insanely difficult to shoot, but oh. it looks fantastic. Yeah, all um, those reflections and you got to keep a lot of people out of those shots at all times. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, the thing, the thing that really gets me I mean, well, this this movie pushes like a whole bunch of buttons for me of different things that I love about the potential of film and things that I love to see in movies. Um, but it's the the love story that's actually a believable love story. I know that woman. I have like relatives up in New Hampshire who are very like mandy including the hair down to her butt um and the weird glasses and you know being kind of introverted i i know this woman you know she seems very real to me um and she and red are both you know it's it's clear red doesn't talk about his past but it's clear that he's been damaged in some way and <laughs> she's been damaged in some way and they they overlap and the cracks that each have are shored up by the other person. Uh, it's, and so together they're, they're whole and they help keep each other well. And they're super in love. And, you know, there's one scene where Mandy's walking has been skinny dipping in the lake uh, at night next to their home and red's tending the fire. And she walks out of the lake and the expression on his face is just if you ever need, you know, the picture in the dictionary for gobsmacked, that's the look on his face as she comes out of the water. Like she's some sort of, you know, primordial 
supernatural creature. Um, and it's just so lovely and wonderful. And there's this b- lovely music that goes with it. And it's the only like lovely, soft, sweet music in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you count the song about Jeremiah Sand. Um, uh, that he wrote about himself. But, the King, the King Crimson intro? But uh, yeah, but I mean, it is so... Despite the horrible thing that happened, it is so refreshing to have a movie where you're allowed to care about and bond with the protagonists before things go wrong. <laughs> Yeah, we we get dropped into their life, and the and it feels you know we we see their peaceful little existence, and their house feels lived in, and there's not a, a ton of backstory on either of them. You know, we get some hints here and there, uh, but I think like just enough to kind of to kind of give you this idea of like these are two people that don't they they wouldn't fare well in the city. They're not going to go out there, and they're going to have friends. They're going to go out with every night. Like they're content just being home every night and just enjoying one another, you know, doing their jobs during the day and then coming back to like, that's all they need. And then it all gets taken away. Selling five. I mean, she shouldn't have sold her a $5 tomato. My God. Caught that this time (laughs) around at her general store that Mandy works at during the day, uh, which looks like the general store from uh, Pumpkinhead a couple weeks ago. (laughs) Like, how are they making it? I digress. Um, David, you, you mentioned in our docket, you know, the Starling story and its purpose within the film. And and I think like part of that is Mandy's only in the a brief part of this movie, really, like just like the first act. And she leaves such an indelible impression on the rest of the movie. And, you know, like Nicole said, that they're coming from something damaged. You know, she's she's got a gnarly scar on her face. And then she has this story about what sounds like a very abusive father. Um, So that would be my guess is like that, that story is honestly the most disturbing thing in the movie to me. Uh, But it it shows you she's coming from a very rough upbringing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you only get little hints about red, but you know, one he's picked a, he's picked a profession where he doesn't have to think a whole lot he just needs to focus on his job and so he you know can't he's and he doesn't have to make conversation with anyone mm-hmm. um but you just in a couple of scenes you get some clues like in the helicopter he's a um not i don't think he's technically a lumberjack but he's the person who actually saws through um the trees for a logging company and they fly them out on a helicopter and someone offers him a beer on the way home and he turns it down um, and doesn't try to talk with the other guys on the, on the helicopter. Um, We find out later he's got a bottle of vodka stashed in the bathroom. And then we find out still later that he's got a friend who lives off in a trailer who's holding weapons for him. And, you know, with those clues, I got the impression that this this man has 
has been to Vietnam. You know, it's supposed to be 1983. So this man's been to Vietnam. He's got PTSD. He probably used to be a really bad drinker and is trying to stay dry. Um, but that's, it's really all you need. Yeah. You know, Cage just kind of lives in this character. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but we also get that great little cameo uh, from Bill Duke. So, yes. Yeah. And awesome I want to talk about that one because, like, <laughs> it seems to me that, like it's, it's almost the one point of the movie that's cliche to me in, a, in a, what is otherwise an entirely wholly original affair, which is like that, like, cabin in the woods ask Undertaker that's like, I know all about the creatures you're about to fight. <laughs> Let me tell you the myth around them. And like, that yeah, got he's me the a little harbinger, bit. sure. The harbinger, <laughs> right? Yeah, he is. Uh, but yeah, I, I think you guys are absolutely right. And got the Starling story. No, it's horrible. It's so absolutely horrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. So okay. So let's let's talk a little bit about Cage <laughs> because. <laughs> Again, we've had this is our I think I think we could say across the board the fact that he's even in future classics says this is the best performance we've seen of him on the podcast. And and I think for me it's like let Cage be Cage. He, he cages this role up in insane ways and let him do that. Let him be that and let him be that in an independent film like this that doesn't have a big Hollywood producer and budget breathing down its neck subduing him um and i know you know david put in our docket you know it's his most subdued performance of recent memory until it isn't and i think that's what (laughs) i'm getting at it's like yeah it's he's he's mild-mannered until shit hits the fan and then it's like yeah arguably the most crazy i've ever seen nick cage and there's been some crazy nick that's saying a lot that's a lot the 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 switch flips in the bathroom scene uh, which Nicole yes. mentioned earlier when he when he goes to get the bottle of vodka, and uh, you know he's he's splashing it on his wounds, and then he's like sits on, then he's he's in nothing but tidy whities and like a tiger shirt, and uh, <laughs> yeah. he's drinking straight from the bottle, and he sits down on the the toilet and he's drinking, then he starts just starts yelling, and he, he's yeah. just going crazy, and just from then on, you know when he's fighting the the, the black skulls. He's got that crazy cage look in his eyes. And it's it's earned a lot more than it is maybe <laughs> in other movies where he just starts out, you know, full tilt. But it's right. it's still it is just like this the beginning of this movie, it's like, oh, okay, he's just playing this kind of quag ah, okay, there it is. There's there's <laughs> the cage. No, the first half he underplays it you know he's he's subtle he's just inhabiting the character and he's just being red and being this you know solid guy and then his his whole world gets ravaged um and in that bathroom it's like he goes through all the stages of grief in the space of about 4 minutes <laughs> And, yeah. you know, he's screaming and then he stops and he just starts sobbing and then he pulls himself together and he pours the vodka on himself and he screams again and then he cries again and then he gets this determined glint in his eye in the end. 
you know. Um, visually, it's it's the most. And then, sorry. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no. I was going to say visually, it's like it's also a very different scene than everything else in the movie. It's like the most well lit yeah, scene in a bright yellow room. Like it's all yellow tile on the floor and ceiling. Yeah, it's it's like um, fluorescent lighting overhead that sort of effect right and well whereas everything else is lit with these you know intense but soft around the edges uh color you know yep. and this is just kind of washed out with yellows and oranges in the background and him stomping around in his tiger baseball shirt and tidy whites and socks and you know, screaming and stomping and chugging nearly an entire like almost two liter bottle of vodka um and i'm just like thank god that's not real vodka or he would be dead yeah well, also pouring it pouring it on his wrist wounds and like in the the stab wound on its side because yeah. right at this point before he's fought anybody he's got a head wound his wrists are all cut up because he was bound with barbed wire his he's got cuts around his mouth because nicole said he was bound in the mouth with barbed wire and he has been stabbed in the side with some sort of sacrificial ancient dagger <laughs> so he's already right. had a rough go before he goes for it um I, I, I mean, do want to say it's stabbed with the sword from the abyssal layer, but you know, <laughs> of course uh, there's two yeah, scenes. No one knows how to deal with that. <laughs> right. There's two scenes where he goes full cage in the best way possible that I wanted to yeah. highlight. So the first of which, cause David mentioned like a, a switch goes off and that's right. But there's two other switches. I would argue the second switch is when he cuts open the neck of one of the black skulls and all of the man's blood. Oh sp- yeah. Like spews like a just torrent of blood onto his face, which for a brief moment, he's, he is upset by or like t- t- taken aback by before reveling in it and just like smearing it in his face and getting increasingly joyful from this experience. Um, and then the second of which, which I think is like the real like third switch for him in the movie is after the chainsaw fight. We'll get to that. I'm tabling that. That's going to be like a whole segment. Um, I love how the, we're building that up. Like It's so yeah. good. Okay. So but after the chainsaw fight, spoiler he wins and he goes to that man's body who which is now on fire and he goes over to it maybe this is the one before a chainsaw fight i think it might be that's I the one before the chainsaw yes fight okay so the ones before cigarette. chainsaw right and he grabs a cigarette from the, from the floor uh and lights it on this man's uh ignited head and just looks yeah. at the camera and takes a drag from the cigarette and essentially breaks the fourth wall. Uh, it's so good. Because <laughs> at that point, he's joyful. Like, at that point, he's loving killing these people. Yeah, he's... Well, he's I don't know. In that particular... I, th- I think that particular thing where he's looking at the at the camera, he's just sort of staring. You're like, uh, what next? <laughs> oh, right. Got it. Do this other thing next? Or should I take this other step first? Gotta go Aye. kill the gotta go kill the cult, but first I have to go uh, talk to a drug manufacturer. Yeah, I gotta go see the chemist. Yeah, I feel like uh, drug manufacturer is like the nicest possible way to describe the chemist, <laughs> which is a man <laughs> testing LSD on a tiger in the middle of the woods. Jovan warrior sent forth from the eye of the storm. Yeah. 
in this Quonset hut in the middle of nowhere, you know, just uh, and with a just tiger. LSD with a and tiger. Nick Cage just stares at him, and the guy's like, "Oh man, you're right." And then lets the tiger yeah. go. <laughs> and I well, love how he's like, "I know it's good when the tiger's real happy." Yeah. Right. It's all yeah. in the mind. So yeah. There are two people, though, that Cage lets go. He doesn't kill entirely indiscriminately when he is angry in the latter half of the film. He lets the chemist go. Um, doesn't have any beef with him. I thought I, The first time I saw this, I totally thought he was going to kill the chemist. Um, but no, he's just coming to get information. He wants to know where the cult is uh, because the cult is supplied LSD by the chemist. They sell it to the Black Skulls. All that good stuff. That's how all three of them are connected. Um, and then also, he doesn't kill Sister Lucy, who is the the young, um, malleable mind that yeah. that Sand yeah. is using to and take. He's clearly taking advantage of her. Um, oh yeah, that girl uh, is is brainwashed hardcore. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's there. There, there is a scene where it's it's made clear he's also taking advantage of her physically too. Um, yeah, oh, sure. Well, but, she's but, the the youngest and the prettiest of the the cult. Um, yeah, you know, and she's she's just this sort of meek, quiet presence who seems yeah. like she's trying to make herself inconspicuous. Yeah. So he doesn't kill her either, though. But I, I kind of yeah. want to point that out. I just, I, you know, he it's not a complete killing spree. Yeah. Well, she's- he made you know when they, you know, when they they burn Mandy, she's the only cult member who looks unhappy and looks away and you know the rest of them one guy's like licking his lips and grinning and the other guy's like making you know pretending to shoot at it you know with his hand as a gun and one guy's looking at it like religious awe and mother marlene who's the the older woman looks just gleeful about it but sister lucy's just like oh Oh, I wish we hadn't done this kind of thing. You know, I wish this weren't happening. And I think he he takes note of that and lets her go. She, well, and she also has this, this part when he is uh, bound up and Jeremiah is trying to prove like, here's what love is. And he has the girl kneel down and then basically play a round of Russian roulette yeah, which is like just—it's disturbing. And you can see, like, when she does it and it doesn't go off, she just has this wave of relief, hinting she didn't really want to do it, but right. didn't really have a choice. Right. And that's that's one of the elements of this movie, and and it might be because I've been listening to too many cults podcasts, but um, <laughs> that's an element of this movie that does go beyond the surreal to me, which is like, and again, this takes place in the eighties, and and you know, in the seventies and the eighties, you had the satanic, you know, panic and all that sort of stuff. Um, there there were a lot of cults that had a couple members like this that had very charismatic leaders that could get them to do really horrific things. Um, and that's not totally far removed. So, and, and without any, without any, uh, justification necessarily, at least any reasonable justification or without any, um, they're not, I'm trying to think of the, how, the best way to describe this. No one's asking for it. Uh, right. so yeah, they're, I mean, they're not provoked Jeremiah in any way. Still- that's what I'm thinking of. 
Yeah. And I mean, Jeremiah is still hanging on to his, to his hippie days, you know, like right. he's a, a generation older than most of his followers. And he's, you know, this failed folk singer um, who still dresses like it's the late sixties and makes his followers dress like it's the late sixties for the most yeah. part, at least the women. And it's, which kind of has to be a Manson thing, right? The failed folk singer. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. That's got to be a call out to to Charles Manson. Um, yeah. But it's it's interesting how Jeremiah dresses like a like a dissolute rock star, you know, who's just failed to be recognized for his his greatness. Yeah. I think there's a little bit of like he's past his prime even as a cult leader. You know, he's got like his yeah. his few followers, but they see like the they seem like they're mostly the ones that have been with him for years and years and years, except for Lucy, who's you know been with him for just who knows how long, maybe like a little while. But everyone else is just kind of there. <laughs> They've kind of just got this over it attitude, like <laughs> when uh, when he's giving his big speech to Mandy and he's putting the song on. They're all just like sitting around like, yeah, whatever, we've heard this a uh, hundred times before. Well, I mean, they're all stoned out of their gourds at that also point, that. too. <laughs> <laughs> and also, he offs so, like, one mean, of his own followers scene. in the first 10 minutes of the movie, or the first, you know, 40 minutes of the movie, he kills one dude, so... <laughs> well, he, he trades him to the, the Black Skulls for the favor of helping him uh, take Red and Mandy. So... I think that's a good segue to another discussion topic. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the Black Skulls because the the lore in the film is that, you know, the, again, the chemist provides the the cult the drugs, the cult is selling them to the Black Skulls, the chemist made a bad batch of LSD that made them go completely wacko, and they've never been quite the same ever since. Um, but we see the Black Skulls, and there's something more than just, like, bikers on crack like like on lsd like there's something more than that they they, they make these mm-hmm. squishy then the like beastly like sounds um they're yeah, they growl a they lot growl they're like they're like unreasonably strong um they they have a very demonic element to them like you see the transaction in which they give the bikers uh some of this lsd but and he like just like inhales it. But then also yeah. they're they're trading blood as well, which is like the whole classic, you know, blood for blood demonic pact thing with the devil or with the demon. Um do we think that they're they're just bikers on LSD or or have they have they evolved into something more? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know for sure. I mean the the story that Carruthers, who's the the character played by Bill Duke, tells to Red is that there are rumors that since they're they're changed, since they got the bad batch of LSD, that they've they've you know done horrible things and killed unknown numbers of people and maybe tapped into some dark dimension. And so, and I mean, you're you're meant to wonder it's kind of up in the air because the you know they call the bikers by blowing this like ocarina made of lava rock uh, <laughs> in a clearing and waiting for the bikers to show up and it doesn't take very long 
But I, I mean, will, you know, on the other hand, it could just be that, you know, Jeremiah sent his followers out to, to call the bikers and then he just like picked up the phone and called them while his other followers were on their way. You know, so that they're they're not just hanging out waiting for that little toot sound to, from the like right, horn of a raxus exactly. or whatever they call it. Yeah, yeah. the horn of a braxus. Yeah. Looks nothing like a horn, but hey. no, it's a Larkarena. I love, uh, I love that that is like how they like these guys are sitting around all day, just like waiting for that horn. <laughs> <laughs> like, you think one of them's ever on ever on horn duty? Oh yeah, yeah it could be <laughs> like ter- Terry. Terry, it's your and, turn. But they, and on. they come in like the hounds of hell, like that. Like it's it's very hellish and demonic, and and that's what I I like about them. I like their visual aesthetic. I think that they. This movie does a great job of creating that that nuance where you don't know whether or not they're like demonic and or whether they're just yeah. really. Cr- I mean, can we just talk about crotch uh, knife because crotch knife is oh yeah the so, character name is um is F pig um <laughs> <laughs> right right uh, and it's a giant knife yeah. coming out of his pants. Uh, yeah, which he attempts to impale Red with. Yeah, it's, you're never supposed to get a clear look at them ever, quite. Mm-hmm. It's like you almost do. There's one time where like one of them gets right in Red's face, and he's got like a like a a call over his face. It's like yeah. there's no there's no facial features. It's like uh, he's wearing some sort of blank mask or maybe that is his face and I don't know where his eyeballs are, but they're not anywhere we can see them. Um, but yeah. And then, then F pig, you don't really get to see his face very closely either, but you do get to see the dildo he's wearing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think this actually ties in really well to a, a, overarching discussion topic that we had a couple questions on in the docket. So I, I kind of combine them together, which was, you know, it seemed to me that once red samples this LSD, which he does after his encounter with F pig. Um, yeah. And, and at that point, I, I almost wonder how reliable of a narrator he becomes and what is a vision for him now and what kind of world is he living in? And we can talk a little right. bit about that and also what it means for the final shots of the movie later on. Um, but you know, how much of this movie is a drug induced fever dream? You know, for me, I was thinking the entire time, like, and this is probably cause I've been watching Lovecraft country on HBO, but like, is it, is it Lovecraftian, right? Where like they're, they're experiencing multiple planes of existence in a way that, that Lovecraft would write about um, and they can like tap into those different realms and like, maybe that's maybe they're on earth, but somewhere else at the same time. Uh, and, you know, David put in our docket that the line between fantasy and reality, the movie plays with it. And sometimes it seems to just yeah. be drug use. And sometimes it's something more. And there's, there's something there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, really there, there are, are those more like psychedelic moments where, you, you know, you really have to, and like some of the shots, like there's like, you know, what the worms crawling, like those black worms crawling around. And it's like, I don't know, you just kind of wonder sometimes, like you said, like did the LSD really drive these people crazy? Are they supposed to be some kind of demon? Like the movie gives you an explanation, but then still takes it kind of a bit beyond the realm of believability, never to a point that like I'm pulled out of the film definitely to a point where it's like, okay, that's the world this movie is, is it's just 
weird and crazy. And I and I kind of like I I kind of like that it is it sits in that liminal space of reality and hyper supernatural paranormal. Yeah, I do too. I like it a lot. And and I mean, we can talk about the final shot of the film, which is after he's decimated this cult and, and the bikers. Um, he's driving off into the sunset before he gives the most Nick Cage look of Nick Cage looks where he's like just smeared <laughs> in buckets of blood, seeing a vision of Mandy in the passenger seat next to him, giving this toothy smile at her um, before the camera cuts out and you see that his truck is driving into um, just like a planetary landscape of something out of a science fiction novel or a fantasy novel or something right out of one of Mandy's own drawings. And, uh, and for me, like that seemed to be part of that, like drug induced fever dream for him that like, you know, at, at this point in the, at the end, he's manifesting Mandy, you know, and he, and he, and he's manifesting her within this world that, that he was, that she loved and that she would create and that, that she would occupy a lot of the time. And and I think it, in part, that's also like the storyteller saying like, Hey, they're still together in spirit. I don't know. I, the, do you guys get what I'm saying? No, kind actually, of? Absolutely. No, that's, that's partly what the director intended. You know, oh, Panos Cosmos was the, the co-writer <laughs> of this movie and he, to him, he, he's like, this is, you know, a tragic, a, a great, chunk you know the a majority of this film is a, a tragic romance you know it's a tragic romantic story and it's partly about how even when people die they're still very real and with us for for a, at least a while you know it's still the memory is still so immediate that you know you could expect them to walk into the room any minute um and that you you kind of carry them and you see that at the end and you see it in like the every time uh you know when red loses consciousness and has these animated visions of mandy um that she's always part of her is always with him he's always thinking about her at some in some way were those animations jarring but also delightful for you guys the first time you saw this movie because it's so out of place but also fits surprisingly well you thought it was out of place it's a, I it's did a not little odd. it was very it was like heavy metal you know like yeah the, oh it the totally is heavy metal it's just yeah. so many animated boobs or i guess just one particular pair of them all over the place but uh no, I, I hear you on that. I, I guess I just wasn't expecting it. Like, it, because keep in mind that this is not something that they establish early oh, yeah. on in the film. It comes an hour and a half into a two-hour movie. Yeah, I was delighted when that <laughs> happened. I was like, oh my! Wow, <laughs> they're, think, going, they're going for this too. All right. <laughs> I think what helps that out a bit is that it happens in a way that you can. E- you're able to explain it easily. It's not just like, because it always happens when Nick Cage is unconscious or he's having these visions. Like we understand that like, this is kind of his view that we're experiencing. It's not just like the movie's going along and then animated segment. It's just completely out of nowhere. It it's given context within the film. Right. Absolutely. So let, let's, let's talk about chainsaw fight. I want to talk about chainsaw fight. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> he shows up to kill 
I think it's like the third or fourth guy at this point. I think it's like the guy before he finally gets to uh, the final two. So third to last. Skullet, I called him. Two of the cult members I just referred to as Mullet and Skullet. Yeah, so uh, Skullet, that's pretty great. And he he pulls up with a reason with a normal size chainsaw, to which Skullet responds with a very large chainsaw, <laughs> and they yeah, chainsaw like the, fight. The I don't even of a man. Yeah. And I don't even know what else to say other than like for the first half of the fight, Nick Cage can't get his chainsaw working, so it's like one working chainsaw versus essentially a sword at that point and then when he gets his chainsaw working they're dueling with chainsaws and then Mm -hmm. it just gets even more intense when they lose their chainsaws 10 out of 10 would recommend the friends (laughs) yeah it's it's wild it's something like it starts you're like okay i guess we're doing this now it's (laughs) it's the most gruesome death for me personally in the movie when when skullet lands just no, but it's the sound. Blood. No, the sound of, <laughs> of the chainsaw just eating up this man's face because he lands face first on it and you see an overhead shot. So, right, it's not like visually as gory, but yeah, audibly <laughs> haunting. <laughs> yeah, the sound design is, is you know, again, intense in this movie. <laughs> yeah. I, I also have a thing for like, like na- nails freak me out. I, I I did not fare well uh, in Sunday school, and uh, <laughs> when Nick Cage gets his one of his hands nailed to the ground by the bikers, that's also a particularly horrific scene for me. Watching Nick Cage pull yeah. a nail out of his hand—that's going to be a no-no. <laughs> it's a no, it's a no from you, dog. Yeah, it's a no bueno. <laughs> no bueno. Yeah, that's an intense one. Yep. So now the director originally approached Nick Cage to play Jeremiah Sand, the cult leader, but he was more interested in playing Red. Uh, Nicole, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, Cosmatos in the original script, which I read, uh, or at least an earlier draft of the script um, than the final one, the Red is, he's not actually given a lot of description, but he's described as uh, wiry and... Um, you know, much more like around 30, say, you know, like late 20s, early 30s. Um, so it just wasn't the picture in his head. And so they were like, okay, you know, Cosmatos and the, the producers, which were Elijah Wood, you know, and his producing partner, Daniel Noah, um, from SpectreVision, they were just like, okay, you know, and like they looked around and looked and kept looking. And like a month later, they weren't are we nuts? Nicholas Cage wants to be in this movie. And we told him, no, let's go back and ask him again if he wants to do it. <laughs> so, uh, so they did. They were like, um, okay, do you, do you still want to be in it? You will, will you can be red. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't, somebody else to be Jeremiah. I don't know who else, like, who else can walk that line that Nick Cage does of <laughs> some of the most absolute over the top, insane acting you've ever seen uh, to the point of maybe actually being bad sometimes and Oscar worthy performances, you know, right. there's no one, there's no one who can express that duality in one movie <laughs> better than Nick. Not to say that he's ever necessarily bad in this movie, but he knows how to go over the top is what I'm trying to say. Sure, well, just, he's, he's fearless. He's a fearless actor. Yeah, he's also so much more self-aware than I think people realize. 
Like, I think people think he's just a, a completely off his rocker all the time. But I remember there was a story that I heard from the director of uh, Ghost Rider 2. And there's some scene in Ghost Rider 2 where he's like, yeah, all right. And then all right, Nick Cage just go crazy right here. And he's like, okay, well, what do you want me to do? I've done this so many times. Like, there's not many, <laughs> not really any new ways for me to do this. I love it. Yeah, I mean... I I've, I've I've given this this rant like five different times on this podcast that Nick Cage is a good actor. <laughs> like, yeah. He just and 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 there were there was a large period of time in which the dude was buying haunted houses he wasn't living in and dinosaur skulls that he had to return to the museums where he was crazy in debt. And and part of me wonders if like maybe he's in a financial position now where he can start taking fun projects that probably don't pay a lot like this movie. Um, because we are seeing a lot less of real stinker Nick Cage movies coming out six times a year. So I, I wonder if he's maybe in a place where he can start taking stuff that he's passionate about again. Um, Boy, I know he's going to be so. Joe Exotic next year, which Oof. that's going to be <sighs> something. Yeah. No, yeah. We're still, yeah. we're all still talking about Tiger King. We all still care about it enough for that to happen. It'll never die. Uh-huh. Um, all right. So uh, <laughs> moving on, the Cheddar Goblin, which I, oh, is this, wow. was this a real thing? <laughs> No, 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 okay. it's not. But it is the the aesthetic behind it is very true to the period of products that were pitched to children in the early 80s. That's very much the tone and the look of the commercials. It's like that's a 1980s kitchen. That's mm-hmm. the lighting that they had in those kind of ads. That's the color scheme that they'd have in those kind of ads. So, I mean, again, this the director came up with this as just like, and the universe, you know, he comes in from the most horrible thing that's ever happened to him in his life. And on the TV is the universe just punching him in the face with its absurdity. Yeah. And so <laughs> that's, that's where this came from. You know, give me the most absurd commercial you can do. And they turned to the right person for that because the person they, <laughs> they had put it together and direct it is Casper Kelly, uh, none other than the director of Too Many Cooks. Find my interview with Casper Kelly about Too Many Cooks on the second season of America's Next Top Podcaster. <laughs> right on. Hey. Yeah, yeah. It's and it's, again, it's the eighties zany... aesthetic captured well there. Yeah, yeah. And I love, I love his response to it. Is just Cheddar Goblin before he goes right into the uh, <laughs> before he goes into the into, into the bathroom, the bathroom <laughs> to have his I, moment. I almost wonder if uh, they shot the scene and there was, you know, they didn't know it was going to be on TV yet. Nick Cage just said Cheddar Goblin. They're like, okay, well, let's go make Cheddar Goblin. <laughs> that's, that's, that. He just gets inside and just starts ad libbing. <laughs> uh, all the macaroni and cheese. <gasps> Look, Cheddar Goblin. Cheddar Goblin, did you eat all the macaroni and cheese? Nothing's better than cheddar. Cheddar Goblin. So, the beast. Uh, Nicole, what is the beast? What are you referring to? It's the axe that he forges himself. Is that what it's called? I Yes. Oh, that's so beat. cool. I almost put in something about this, because did he have that mold ready? Like, that's not an <laughs> afternoon project. That yeah. is... That is no, this is, it, 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 it like ra- wanders into Rambo last blood territory. <laughs> he just goes into like, 
you know, elaborate his, weapon his backyard making. forge. Yeah. No, yeah. I, but I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I can almost believe it just because of all the, you know, allusions to uh, fantasy stories that are sprinkled throughout the movie. You know, this is a fantasy weapon. This is not a real weapon that anybody would have. This is something that you draw on the cover of your fantasy novel because it looks really cool. And um, there's some, there's a, a rumor that it was modeled kind of after the logo for Celtic Frost, which is a a doom metal band um, from Switzerland. Um, and it does look kind of similar. It's similarly shaped. It like tapers to a point at the end. With, well, like, the end is like a, the, the end's like a spear. Like, like, yeah, the, like it, yeah, it, it, the it, end I, is sharpened. At the it's bottom, like, it's almost like the whole Kylo the Ren argument. Is, it's sort of, I was just gonna yeah, say, it's like well, almost I mean, like the, the Kylo like Ren argument. It sounds like he's going to hurt himself more with it than he'd hurt someone else, but well, somehow no, it works. A, yeah, the handle's like built into the 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 body of the axe rather than like the end of it. So you'd swing it around. It's like a it's like a oh god, I'm a geek. Uh, it's like a botleth. You know, it's kind of <laughs> you have the two handles part way down the body of the thing and swinging around with the edge. But or you could throw it, or you uh, could stab somebody with it. <laughs> I would love it as he's bringing which it he down. does all of those things. Yes, he does. I would love if, as he was bringing it down on somebody, he was just like, you are without honor. <laughs> I, though I do say it is, it is not the greatest movie acts we've seen on movie go round because there is still the appearing and disappearing acts from uh reign of fire for Matthew McConaughey, where it just randomly yeah, appears when convenient for his character. Axe. It is. This a, one is cooler looking. Yeah, I'll agree with Nicole on that. It is much cooler looking. <laughs> Everything about this movie is cooler Very than shiny. Fire. Yeah. It's like it's made out of chrome. <laughs> so speaking of that of that influence of like fantasy and, and all that good stuff, at the at the at the very end of the credits, there's a a shot of like Mandy's artwork, which you don't actually see in the movie. Yeah. He walks up to her when she's doing it, but we don't see it. Um and the artwork shows uh Red, uh, Cage's character, like in kind of a fantasy setting that almost doesn't look too dissimilar from the movie you just saw, um, which has led some people to theorize that the whole movie is, is, you know, the book she's reading or one of the books that she's read or that she knows about because like there are allusions to it throughout the movie. He's wearing a tiger shirt and the guy has a tiger and like there's there's little things here and there that like make you feel like it's almost so surreal and ridiculous that this could be a fantasy painting or novel that Mandy is putting together. Um, I kind of love that about this movie that I don't know if I subscribe to that theory, but I love that there are so many theories out there for this movie like that one. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see it. Yeah. I guess I could see it. I don't know if I, if I necessarily buy it either because it's no, me either. While yeah. it is fantasy, it is not dime store novel fantasy. Agreed. Yeah. And she's reading those mass markets. Uh, so, well, yeah, she's, but I do want to mention real quick, just cause she doesn't get, um, a very, a big, um, you know, her name's not very big in the credits, but the artist who actually did the artwork is named Julie Bell. And she's actually a, a well-known established, uh, fantasy artist, uh, and ex bodybuilder, uh, as well, which I thought was interesting. Um, 
And she's married to probably the most famous fantasy artist that there is right now, Boris Vallejo. Um, hmm. So I'm wondering, since she's a bodybuilder, I wonder if like they met because she modeled for him or something. Hmm. Interesting. Realized they were both artists and and just got along and you know decided to to stay together. But um, but her work is beautiful. I follow her on Instagram and she posts stuff regularly and it's absolutely gorgeous. And her knowledge of anatomy is you know dazzling. You can see the musculature uh, perfectly in the the figures that she creates. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Uh, a couple other brief discussion topics before we wrap down here. Uh, Crystal Lake, is there a camp there from David? Yeah, they live down by Crystal Lake. I, I Yeah, I just I, I threw that in as I was watching, and I heard, <laughs> I heard her mention Crystal Lake, and I was like, hmm. This isn't the first time yeah. we've had to deal with murders at, down at Camp Crystal Lake. Right. right. They, oh, yeah. they, they were so happy. They, they sold off the property, bulldozed the camp, built this beautiful cabin. <laughs> Got a lovely couple to move in there, and then oh, come on! Right. <laughs> All right, and then finally, let's talk about the music. We've talked about it in passing, but a little bit more directly. Um, is it Johan Johansson? Is the yeah the yeah? Uh, it's it's his final film score, and and I, I kind of threw out there right away that like despite the overwhelming metal aesthetic of this film, um, there's and metal influence according to Nicole as well, which makes total sense. Um, not necessarily as much in the music. Like it's, it's more like atmospheric drone with like tinges of metal influence and, and King Crimson songs than it is like metal. I mean, there's, there's a subgenre called drone metal and, uh, that's, they got, uh, a drone metal guitarist to do some of the electrical, electric guitar parts. Really? Uh, for the film. It was, Stephen O'Malley of Sun, which is spelled S-U-N-N and then a capital O and then three closing parens. So it looks like, I guess, Sunshine and it's the, like okay. the most pretentious band name ever. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, that's it's what they, it's what he specialized in. And apparently, Johan Johansson, you know, uh, was way into the Icelandic metal scene when he was younger and so that was something that he could actually appreciate and sort of, you know, build a little, maybe not the exact sound, but build a little of the feel of it into the music, uh, especially the parts around like the black skulls. You right. really get those, those guitar hits, those heavy metal guitar hits. Um, but yeah, this was Johan Johansson's last score. He started it right after he finished the score for Arrival. Um, and uh, don't do cocaine when you're taking flu medication, guys. Yeah. Oh, we, God. We should have gotten so much more work out of Johanny oh, yeah. in the fact that we're not going to get his score for Dune, which you know oh. is probably oh, who man. it's going to be, is a tragedy. Ooh, he did. Um, I didn't know that he really? did Sicario, a film that will totally end up on this podcast at some point. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. He, he did some beautiful, beautiful work. And I was so happy when, you know, after arrival, I went and I looked up, you know, all the stuff that he had, he had done. And I'm just like, oh, I love this sound. I love this kind of atmospheric and ambient and 
cool soundscapes that he's making. And I thought, oh, I can't wait to see what he's doing next. And then he died. <laughs> and it's just so, oh, yeah. what a loss. What a loss. It really is. No kidding. And interestingly, um, I find it interesting as well in regard to the music of the film that it does also have a prog rock influence, like progressive rock. Like it, it starts with oh, a yeah. King Crimson song. Um, mm-hmm. If you're not familiar with King Crimson, it's like definitely peak gratuitous prog rock. There's some like 30 minute long songs in their catalog. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a great sound for the movie. Just this, everything that Johansson worked on combined with, with, you know, items like that in the soundtrack works really well. Uh, works absolutely yeah. beautifully. And now knowing this is the and guy that did a- stuff like Sicario make, makes total sense. Yeah. And I mean, that King Crimson song is, is that was actually written into the script that that was the song right. that would be playing as we see Red leaving his, his work site. Yeah. It's like uh, in the title credits. It's like melancholy, the- uh, melancholy thing. I mean, there's, there's a little bit before that, before we get the intro to Red, where it gives you that poem. Um, about when I die, bury, you know, speakers at my feet so I can rock and rock and roll me when I'm dead. Right. Um, which is actually, they were the last words of a death row inmate from Texas um, that have become kind of famous after the fact. Um, but there was supposed to be this uh, really, you know, kind of dark, gnarly uh, Van Halen song over that there's an instrumental Van Halen song called uh, Saturday afternoon in the park. Yep. Uh, that was supposed to be the the very first thing you hear, but you know, I, I like kind of the more, you know, easing in with the soundscape and then throw in the King Crimson to really set the mood and uh, kind of let you bring you into the world gently <laughs> Before yeah. it, it starts, you know, going um, fantastical. Agreed. Well, Nicole, fantastic pick. As we wind down here, uh, I'll say at oh, least good. for myself. I'm glad you like it. Uh, I'll say at least for myself that I, I wholeheartedly agree that this will be a future classic, particularly in the horror category. This is something that when it came out, we were all gobs gobsmacked by just how different it was. It was so different and so original and unique and, and cage is great in every way possible in it. <laughs> and it's such a memorable performance from him. And, and I can't, I can't imagine this movie not making the circuit at indie theaters at midnight screenings 20 years from now. I just, it's, it's definitely going to, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I would agree. I think uh, I think horror movie cult classic is the best cult classic to kind of be because you know regular cult classics. It's like, oh man, that movie's great. I've seen it and I love it. It's this cool little thing I show other people. Horror cult classics, people go hard. People <laughs> memorize it. They like search out all the behind the scenes. They know all these facts about it. You know, they they'll dress up for it for years and years. They'll show up to screenings. Uh, it it really is the best place to be for a movie like this, and I think it'll absolutely just to add on to what Brett said, it'll absolutely end up in that you know packed out midnight showings in that that weird little theater in your town. And, and it as kind it of already there every time, 
<laughs> yeah, and it kind of already is. Like, like I mentioned the music boxes where I saw this film. They've shown it like 10 times since then. Like, this is on rotation alongside things like Reanimator and The Room, which are some of their other ah, lucky heavy hitters. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so a reminder, uh, we are going to have Tigers Are Not Afraid tomorrow night, continuing the movie ghoul round five night marathon leading up to October 31st, Halloween this Saturday. That is my pick for around the world. You can stream it on shutter. Be sure to check that out. David, where can people find you online? Find me on Twitter at devluz. That is D A V L U Z. Say what I'm up to there. Very good. And what about you, Nicole? You can find me on letterboxd at Nicole underscore Davis. Very good. You can find the show under Movie Go Round on Facebook and Twitter. Go ahead and search for it there. It's easy to follow or like it. Do whatever you have to do. That way you can follow along for You Did This To Us Weeks every five weeks, which gives you the opportunity to vote on what the next film we watch and what that's going to be. Uh, This time around, we will have already voted and watched it because we're recording these ahead of time for Halloween. Uh, But this one would have been a great one to be involved in because we're only letting people vote on horror movies because it's Movie Go Around. So when things like this happen, you want to be on those lists and on those social networking platforms. That way you can follow along. But you can find me personally on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. We will see you tomorrow night with Tigers Are Not Afraid. You and that ugly little whore. You think you're so in love. I'll show you love.